Psalm 145. We're taking a little bit of a, a break from our study in the book of James to uh, continue this series in the Psalms. So, Psalm 145, uh, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. A praise of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will give praise, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness, and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men His mighty acts and the glorious majesty of His kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you And you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways, gracious in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call Him upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless His holy name forever and ever. Let us seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, how we rejoice and give thanks to You, Father, that You have revealed to us Your holy word. And that here, right in the middle of our Bibles, of your word, you have given us this book of praise. And as we consider this passage, this psalm, this morning, we would pray, Father, that you would truly open our hearts by the power of your Spirit, give us understanding and insight to see the truth that is here, to truly meditate upon your glory and the wonders of your grace and your being, your attributes and your works. And that this might stir within us a sincere and true desire to give everlasting praise to your holy name. And so we pray, Father, now for your blessing upon your holy word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. As I mentioned this morning, we resume our Summers in the Psalms series, considering Psalm 145, and with it, uh, we begin the final portion, or the push, Lord willing, to the end of this 
divinely inspired book of praise that God has given to us in His Word. But as we get started, there are a few things uh, to note about the structure of Psalm 145 and its, its place in the Psalter. First, Psalm 145 is the last of the eight acrostic psalms that we find uh, scattered about in the Psalter. In acrostic psalms, you remember, each verse of the psalm begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And of course, Psalm 119 is really the ultimate example of this acrostic uh, structure with entire sections of, of eight verses each all beginning with one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now you'll see here that Psalm 145 only has 21 verses. The the letter Nun is a letter that's missing. But this isn't unusual uh, for these acrostic psalms to be missing a letter or two. There are others that uh, don't have all the letters. And some translations include, uh, may include a variant reading. Usually it may be bracketed or italicized or put in quotes at the end of verse 13 that would include uh, the nun. Although it says nothing contrary, that, that uh, um, variant reading, though it shows, uh, is nothing contrary to the Word of God, it isn't a part of the received Hebrew text. Well, we've noted before that there is a psalm for every occasion. There are psalms of sorrow and suffering, persecution, salvation, joy, thanksgiving, praise and worship, prayer, devotion, wisdom, psalms for traveling, for peace, safety, raising children, psalms of admiring creation, and psalms exploring the wonders and the depths of the promises of God and His Word. Now, most of the time, these psalms are scattered about and mixed and mingled Altogether, but other times they're organized into distinct collections with a similar theme tying them together. And so, <clears throat> for example, we had the Egyptian Hillel, which was Psalm 113 through 118, which was sung uh, by the Jews during the celebration of the Passover as it looked back to God's delivering his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And then the uh, Songs of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 134, which was the collection of psalms sung by Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate one of the great feast days. But as we approach the end of the Psalter, Psalm 145 and the following five psalms all have one thing in common. They're all chiefly focused on praise to the Lord. In fact, in Psalm 146 to 150, uh, each of those psalms begins and ends with the same words, Praise the Lord. And the, that uh, collection of psalms, uh, those psalms are often considered to be the final doxology for the whole book of Psalms. Each, each psalm, each, remember the book of Psalms is divided up into five books. Um, and at the end of each of those books, there's kind of a doxology. Sometimes it's separate, a separate psalm. Sometimes it's the included at the end of another psalm. But here... At the end, these last uh, several psalms really uh, mark this final doxology for not just the fifth book, but for the entire book of Psalms. And though Psalm 145 doesn't begin and end with the same exact words, praise the Lord, well, it does very much emphasize the theme of praising the Lord. 
But instead, <clears throat> but instead of a general call uh, to all to praise the Lord as the other psalms do, Psalm 145 is really uh, seems to be David's personal commitment to praising God. And this leads us then to the final structure, the final structural note or comment about Psalm 145. It is the last psalm that is ascribed to David in the ancient titles. And though it may not necessarily be have been the last psalm that David wrote, and he very likely wrote these next several psalms, well, as you read through this psalm, Psalm 145, you can imagine David looking back on his life and reflecting on all that the Lord has done for him, in him, and through him, and how it leads him to offer up this praise to the Lord. Now, of course, with as with all psalms, we know that the words that are expressed by David here are ultimately not only the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God become flesh, but they really anticipate the fullness of God's grace, glory, majesty, and might displayed in the salvation that Jesus would accomplish for undeserving sinners such as we are. And so Psalm 145 is a grand meditation on the greatness and the glory of God come to its fullness in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we begin verses 1 and 2. David begins with a doxology that is a giving of praise and glory to God, acknowledging Him and the glory of God's being. He says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Now consider in this doxology David's commitment to praising God. He extols, that is, he lifts up and exalts the name of the Lord. He commits to blessing the Lord, that is, he humbles himself before the Lord and he acknowledges his great worth. And then he will praise the name of the Lord. Literally, hallelujah. Rejoicing and giving thanks for the God who is. Now these three key words, extol, bless, and praise, are simply uh, different ways of saying the same thing. But again, as we see throughout the, the Psalms, throughout the Scriptures really, the repetition emphasizes, is there for emphasis, and it emphasizes the fact that David's committed to giving to the Lord the praise, glory, honor, and worship that He's due as the one true living God, creator of heaven and earth. And this commitment is shown throughout the psalm, even as it's been shown throughout David's life. And again, thinking back about David's life and his commitment to serving the Lord and praising the Lord at all times. Well, indeed, this is the commitment that is to mark not only every believer in Christ, but actually it's, it's a commitment to mark every human being who's been created in the image of God. See, David expresses emphatically the chief end of man. What is the chief end or the purpose of man? The reason for which we are created is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as we'll see at the end of the psalm, 
This is exactly where David ends up, declaring in verse 21, that all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Indeed, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age, remember what the the Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians 2, that every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All flesh will give praise to God forever and ever. And David anticipates that time here. And again, he commits himself to giving this praise and glory, though not just then, not just at the end time, but he starts in the present. Even that very day. Every day I will bless you, he says in verse 2. Every day from now on through eternity, he will praise the name of the Lord. He'll praise the name of the Lord through the good days and the bad through the days of sunshine and the days of darkness, through the days of joy, as well as the days of sorrow, he will praise the Lord. Indeed, beloved of God, glorify and enjoy God both now and forever in your lives, each and every day, without ever stopping. And that's what David's commitment is here. Again, this is the purpose for which all mankind was created, and all mankind is under this very duty and obligation. But as we know, because of the sinfulness of man's heart, that not everyone praises the name of the Lord. Right? Not everyone acknowledges His glory and worth. But we know that one day, as David indicates here, as Paul reminded us, one day they shall. But you see, by that time, it may be too late as they will lift their praise from the darkness and eternal flames of hell. And so, friends, the time to acknowledge the Lord's glory and the time to praise Him begins right now, today. And if this is true for all humanity, well, how much truer is it for those who've been redeemed by Christ and who've been set apart in grace? To be his own special people. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we ought to praise the Lord. And this is the second thing that David draws out in this opening doxology. Not only his commitment to praising the Lord, but he makes this commitment because the Lord is my God and King. Now the reference to the Lord as my God is a claim of ownership and it really reflects the covenantal language that the Lord expressed to the Israelites when he promised to deliver them from slavery and in Egypt and to uh, assemble them as, uh, as a nation and as a people of his own choosing. In Exodus 6 verse 7, the Lord says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from the land, from out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And that's the covenant language that we see throughout the, the scriptures. I will be your God and you will be my people. And David is the Lord's. And that's what he's claiming here. And the Lord is David's. Indeed, the same is true for us, beloved. Through the covenant of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the people of God. 
We are the sheep of His pasture and He is our Lord, our God. He is our Good Shepherd. Even the Good Shepherd, He laid down His life and gave Himself so that we might be held securely in His hand for all eternity. And the God who secured for us such a great and glorious salvation is certainly worthy of our praise and our worship even now. But David also refers to the Lord here as his king. Now this may seem a little strange since David himself is a king. Does the king have a king? Well, indeed he does. Indeed, David here acknowledges that though he's the king of Israel, he rules and reigns under the authority of the Lord God himself. And David submits to God's authority and he acknowledges God's rule not only over the kingdom of Israel, but he acknowledges especially that the Lord God is King and Lord of his own life. David isn't the supreme authority of his life. Even though he's king, the Lord is king of his life. Again, setting for us a wonderful example. You see, if the king bowed to the Lord as king of kings, well then so too ought we bow and submit ourselves to the rule and the authority of the Lord God in our lives. And who is that king of kings, that king of glory that we ought to acknowledge? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, even David's greater son. You see, David would declare in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And and Jesus in the New Testament refers uh, the the Pharisees to this passage and asks them this question, If David's the king, why is he referring to uh, someone else's king over him? And of course, Psalm 110 is that great messianic psalm. See, David knew that there was a greater king than him. A king whom the Lord promised would come from him. His greater son, whose kingdom would be established as an eternal kingdom. And so David is looking forward to that king of kings and lord of lords. This eternal king ought to be acknowledged and praised. Not only in the praise and worship which we offer up here as we're gathered together in His name, but even in how we live our everyday lives throughout the rest of the week. In both word and deed, we ought to give praise to our God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved of God, this is the challenge that is set before you in this opening doxology. To acknowledge the Lord as your God and as the Lord and the King of your life, and that He ought to then be praised and glorified. Now throughout the rest of the psalm, David lays out a variety of reasons as to why the Lord, the one true living God and King of kings, ought to be praised and worshipped by one and all. In verses 3 to 6, God is to be praised because of His unsearchable greatness. In verse 3, David says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Now there are two uh, areas of God's greatness on display in these, uh, this group of verses. First, God is great in the essence of His being. 
Right? This greatness relates to one of God's incommunicable attributes. Right? The incommunicable attributes, remember, are those characteristics of God that are unique to Him and that they are not shared with any of His creatures, as opposed to His communicable attributes, which He does share. But God's greatness relates to His infiniteness or His eternality. Right? God is eternal. That is, He's infinite in relation to time. He has no beginning or end. God simply is. Psalmist sings in Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always been. Before the foundations of the earth were set, God was. Throughout this time of, of human history, God is. Into the world to come, God will ever be. He is eternal in relation to uh, an infinite relation to time. Well, in relation to space, God is immense. Right? That is, he's, he's so big, He can't be contained by anyone or anything. Remember after building the temple in Jerusalem, what Solomon said and acknowledged in 1 Kings 8, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Right? God uh, called the, uh, Solomon to build the temple of Jerusalem to be the place where he would dwell in the midst of his people. And the glory cloud descended, and yet there was the acknowledgement that even that temple could not contain the Lord. Not even the whole earth. Not even the heavens of all the heavens. Because God is so great, He cannot be contained by anything. Well then, in relation to understanding, God's greatness shows us that God is incomprehensible. Or as David declares here, God is unsearchable, His unsearchable greatness. And we're but mere finite creatures. We have an end and a beginning. And we have a capacity to know and understand only so much. There's limits. But God is infinite. He's limitless. And though it's true that we can know God truly and sincerely as He has revealed to Himself to us through creation and especially through His Word and His Son, so we can know God truly, but it's impossible for us to know God fully. Because something that's finite can't comprehend something that's infinite. Because God is so great, Beyond, he's beyond what we could possibly comprehend. And so yes, we see here that God is great in His being. But God is also great in His works. That is, in what He does. And so praise is given to God in verse 4 for His works and mighty acts. And then in verse 5, <clears throat> the splendor of His majesty and wondrous works. And verse 6, for His awesome or His terrible acts. Again, note the repetition for emphasis. Now, usually in the Scriptures, 
the great works of God typically refer to his work of creation, right? How he created all things out of nothing in the space of six days, and how he uh, continues to uphold and sustain all that he has created. That's considered the great works of God. But then his mighty acts, or his awesome acts, or his terrible acts, that is, they're terrible because they bring about fear, they usually refer to God's great work of delivering His people and bringing about their salvation and carrying out His judgment and displaying His sovereign rule over all mankind. Think about the ten plagues in Egypt. And God was bringing about these mighty acts to display to Pharaoh and to all the Egyptians and even to Israel that He was the one true living God greater than all the false idol gods of the Egyptians. And then, of course, we have the various times when God delivered His people from their enemies throughout their history in great and mighty ways, sometimes using simple means to defeat entire armies. These are the great mighty acts. And, of course, it culminates in the securing of our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. When God in great power and might raised Him up from the dead on the third day, securing our salvation. And so God's awesome and His terrible acts are many. And they're truly wonderful in our eyes. They're wonderful to us. If we would only take the time to examine them and and really to meditate on them, even as David does here in verse 5. Right? Read through and, and meditate on the great mighty acts of God and on His awesome greatness. This attribute of His, of His infinity. You won't be able to get your mind wrapped around the whole thing. But just me- spending time meditating upon it ought to lead you to glorious praise of the Lord God, our Savior. And so God is to be praised because He truly is a great God and He does great and wonderful things for us. Well then in verses 79 and again in verse 14 and 16, we see the abounding mercy of God on display so that we might praise and glorify His name. And God's mercy includes the attribute of His goodness. In verse 9, They shall utter the memory of your great goodness. God's goodness is how He acts toward, toward others, His creatures and His creation. It's His benevolence, or sometimes referred to as the common grace, because it's God's general blessing toward all His creatures and all creation without distinction. And indeed, because God is good... His word and His works are also good and right. Now God's mercy also includes God's great compassion. In verse 8 we see is actually a quotation from Exodus 34.6. And, and interesting enough, this uh, quotation in Exodus is when Moses had asked the Lord to see His glory. And Moses wanted to, to see the glory of the Lord. And the Lord said, well you can't see it because you'll die but I'll show you a little bit. And as the glory cloud of the Lord passed by, and Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock, the Lord simply declared, The Lord, the Lord God, 
merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. I didn't see the, the glorious brightness of God because that would be too much. But when God declared and showed His glory, He declared that He was a merciful and a compassionate God and patient and long-suffering and aboundness, abounding in goodness and truth. Now God's compassion or tender mercies as we see in verse 9, uh, that, that's a tender mercies is a word that's reminiscent of a, of a nursing mother, attentive to her child. So we have this great, awesome, infinite God, and yet here this God is full of compassion and tender mercies, even as a mother, a nursing mother is attentive to her needy and helpless child. Similar to how Jesus described himself when weeping over Jerusalem. As he was approaching Jerusalem for the last time and and knowing that they would reject him as their Messiah. Jesus declared, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And there we see the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is that he would have wanted to gather them together as this mother hen gathers her chicks under her to, to guard and to protect and to provide for them. Indeed, it's the compassion and everlasting mercy of God that is ultimately then on display at the cross. As Jesus, the eternal Son of God, gave himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins. Right, enduring the wrath and curse of God on our behalf so that we might have forgiveness of sins. So that we might have the sure and certain hope of eternal life in God's glorious presence. God is truly compassionate and merciful. Well, the mercy of God also includes His providential care of all the creatures that He's made, as we see in verses 14 to 16. He he upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. And showing forth God's care for the weak, the afflicted, and the oppressed of both man and beast. And His care is, is such that the creatures look earnestly to Him to receive their food, in verse 14. And He graciously provides for them. From his hand, every good and perfect gift in order to sustain them. Find here echoes of Psalm 104, which speaks of these same things Lord's uh, gracious provision for and sustaining of all his uh, creation. Beloved of God, if God is so mindful to care and provide for the creatures of the earth, remember, as Jesus says in Matthew 6. When he says this, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And Jesus is saying, Look, look at all these birds, and God provides and cares for them. But then he says this, Are you not of more value than they? Indeed you are. The Lord will bound with mercy, goodness, and compassion and care toward you. Indeed, as He already has beyond what you could possibly imagine and beyond what you could even remember, I'm sure. Certainly, this is a reason to give everlasting praise to Him. 
especially for those of us who have been redeemed by His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then in verses 10 and 13, it is specifically the saints, God's holy ones, who give praise to the Lord for His glorious majesty and the majesty of His kingdom. We know every king is not a king unless he has a kingdom. And David acknowledged the Lord as his God and king. But but God's kingdom is much more vast and glorious than the ancient nation of Israel. See, God's kingdom is the whole earth. Even all creation. In Psalm 47, the psalmist sings, Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. God is the King of all the earth. And the King of all the earth is truly majestic and glorious, more than any earthly king who ever lived. And what's more, the kingdom of God is as He is. It's an eternal, everlasting kingdom, as we see in verse 13. And What's interesting here is that these words are found, verse 13, the words there are found hundreds of years later, written by David, but then hundreds of years later, they're found on the lips of the heathen king Nebuchadnezzar, who ironically was the one who who took David's throne away from his descendants. Right, who came in and he, and he plundered Jerusalem and he destroyed uh, everything in Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple. Bring an end to a king sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Well, instead of acknowledging the glory of the one true living God, Nebuchadnezzar boasted with great pride. And looking out over his own kingdom, he he boasted and said, look at all these wonderful things that I have done. He failed to see even that the Lord had raised him up and used him as an instrument of judgment, even for his own people. And so when he boasted with pride, the Lord humbled him. And for the next seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lived as a beast in the fields. But after that time of humiliation in Daniel 4, we read this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, And I bless the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion, or His kingdom, is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom is from generation to generation. He's quoting there from Psalm 145. And he acknowledges the kingdom of God and the eternality of God's glorious kingdom. Indeed, the Lord reigns as King, majestic and glorious. But these words point us far beyond David and even far beyond Nebuchadnezzar. And we know they will come to realization on the last great day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power, glory, and majesty, ushering in the fullness of this eternal kingdom. At that time, we read in Revelation 11, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Because of the glorious majesty of the kingdom of God and its King, the Lord Jesus 
Friends, God ought to be praised. But David continues to narrow his focus from the more general to the very specific. And he's noted many reasons that all mankind have to glorify and praise the name of the Lord. He's spoken specifically of the saints, the people of God, extolling the majesty of God's eternal kingdom. But in verses 17 to 20, David makes it more personal. As he extols the outpouring of God's grace on undeserving sinners like you and me. For the Lord is truly righteous in all His ways. And He's gracious in all His works. And this was demonstrated in creation and God's providential care of His creation. But again, it's most especially demonstrated in the salvation of sinners to new and everlasting life in Jesus Christ. In verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. It is the repentant sinner who humbles himself before the Lord and acknowledges that there's no hope for salvation in himself or in anything that the world offers. And so what does he do? He cries out in truth and sincerity of heart, seeking the grace and the mercy of the Lord for forgiveness of sins. And the Lord is gracious and merciful. To hear and answer His cry. To deliver and to save. To preserve and to give life. Even eternal life. Beloved of God. Have you considered the great privilege that you have. To have such a glorious and gracious God and King. Now think about it. It would be impossible. Or at least it would be a a complicated, discouraging process and bureaucratic nightmare to gain an audience with any earthly king or or even the President of the United States or even the, the Governor of the state. But consider, dear friends, that God the Lord, the one true living God, the very and only Creator of heaven and earth, the King of all the earth, that He is ready and willing to receive at all times all those who would simply humble themselves in truth and call upon His name in faith. He will receive them. He will hear them. He will save and deliver them. And He will continuously pour out His love, His mercy, and His grace upon them. This is the invitation Jesus Himself gives in John chapter 6 verse 35 I am the bread of life he who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out We come to Christ to receive that bread, to receive that life-giving water that He alone offers. We come to Him in faith and truth. He will not cast us out from His presence. Beloved, with such a, a gracious God, King and Savior at our side, do we really need any more reason then to give true everlasting praise to Him? David doesn't. He concludes this psalm in much the same way that he began. 
by committing himself to give all praise and glory to the Lord. Verse 21, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Again, David began by saying what he was going to do. He was going to praise the Lord. Then he listed the reasons for doing so. And now he actually begins to do what he said on the very day he said it. He lifts his praise to his God and King. Beginning on that very day and then on through the rest of his life and even now. Even now as David's spirit is in the presence of the Lord, he's praising and worshiping the Lord unto the fullness of time. At the end of the age when his soul will be reunited with his body on the last great day. And he will then join with all the saints. All the saints of every age. Even even us here today. He will join with them to give the Lord the glory, praise, honor, and worship that is due to him alone. But let's not wait until then. But begin even now to give everlasting praise to our God and King. You see, for when we do so now in this life, we actually bear witness to others of the wonders of God's glorious attributes and of His works. Consider briefly the emphasis on how this praise of God's attributes and works are really a continual witness to others, challenging them to join in the chorus, fulfilling their ultimate created purpose. David, of course, begins with himself, as we saw in in verses 1 and 2, praising God. Then in verse 4, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. The challenge here is that our praise is to be passed on to our children. That they might know about the mighty works that God has done. That they might know about the great and awesome God and all His wonderful and glorious attributes. And then our children are to pass it on to their children and they to theirs, one generation to another, so that the praise of God is declared in every generation in the church unto the last great day. And then in verse 6 and 7, Man shall speak of the mighty... Uh, of the might of your awesome acts. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. God's righteous character and deeds are found on the lips of others. Even unbelievers outside the covenant compelled to bear witness to the glorious majesty of our God. Again, remember the example of Nebuchadnezzar and we uh, considered before uh, the uh, example of, of Rahab and a profession of faith. Because of the mighty works that they had heard that God had done. The people there in Jericho were filled with great fear. Praise to God on the lips of these pagans would serve as a witness to them and to others that they ought to acknowledge and honor the one true living God even now in this life. And then also in verses 10 to 12, the particular challenge to the saints, God's holy ones, even to those redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we might, verse 12, make known to the sons of men His mighty acts and the glorious majesty of His kingdom. The key reason, beloved of God, that we're called to praise and worship the Lord 
is so that we might be a great witness to those in the world around us. That we would be a witness of the abounding grace, mercy, and the goodness of our God and His ability to transform lives and to bring rebellious uh, sinners into union and communion with their Creator. That there could be peace and reconciliation with the One who created them. So that we might then, when we praise God, we might testify to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to kings, to princes, to presidents, to the rich, the poor. Whoever it might be, we might declare to them the awesome power and majesty of our King who is truly gracious to all who come to Him in truth. But who will also be just, good, and righteous in the administration of His justice upon the wicked and the unrepentant sinner. We testify them of the way of salvation. We testify to them of the, of the, the warning of God's righteous judgment. Beloved of God, we're called to testify of these things so that the glorious name of our God and King, even the Lord Jesus Christ, would be made known throughout all the earth so that many would come to Him in truth and that from now on throughout all eternity, all flesh would offer up everlasting praise to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for this psalm, for this truth, and this meditation upon Your great works and Your wonders, Your attributes. And it is truly overwhelming for us when we truly think about these things. Okay, how great and awesome You truly are. How merciful and compassionate and the glorious wonders of Your kingdom. Your power to change lives. And we've experienced that, many of us, in our own lives. Redeeming us from the deadness of sin. Bringing us to new and everlasting life in Christ. Father, we pray that we would truly be committed, as Your servant David was, to give all glory, praise, and honor to Your name. That we would be a true witness of the wonders of Your glory and Your majesty and Your might to this community and to those beyond. And that through that witness, many would come to see that glorious gospel truth. And that they would join with us in this chorus of praise and thanksgiving as we anticipate the last great day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and glory for all to see. And that all will be then compelled to bow their knee and to confess and praise His holy name as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Father, it's better to do that now in this life and forever than to do that and be compelled on the last day with hearts still in rebellion against You and yet compelled to offer You the praise that You are due. And so, Father, we pray that You would impress these truths upon our hearts by the power of Your Spirit, that You would again help us to be faithful witnesses of these things. And as we even continue our time of worship and praise this morning, 
that your name would truly be lifted up and glorified in our midst. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.